Good morning. I'm Kevin. Good to meet you. Uh, I'm going to read James 5, 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. If you're joining us for the first time, this is how we kick off Christmas every year. Um, uh, my name is Marshall, and I'm one of the, the pastors here. If you're new, I just want to say we're really glad that you've joined us today. And um, doesn't it feel good to say Merry Christmas? I've been saving it. You guys are my first Merry Christmas. So Merry Christmas, everybody. Stephen Coffin moved his family to the Pacific Northwest in 1847. He was an investor and builder, and he had come to the Northwest for the opportunity to become a founder in, of a new society in sort of the new, new world. And in 1849, Stephen Coffin, he bought half an interest in the Portland Township site and became one of the five founders of the city of Portland, Oregon, owning nearly all of downtown, uh, in, including the, the west side and the east side. It's pretty incredible. Now, Stephen Coffin's story is a bit of a mixed bag. He was a man of faith. Uh, he donated large sums of money to the Episcopal Church. In fact, the Episcopal Church site that is downtown was donated by Stephen Coffin. He built boys' homes and girls' home, and girls schools. He donated, to, donated land throughout the city to build parks. He was the first person to supply the city with, with uh, drinking water uh, by establishing the Pioneer Waterworks. He built bridges and infrastructure. Stephen Coffin is a name that most of you have probably never heard of before, and yet he was at the heart of Portland's story. But being at the heart of Portland's story, he also participated in the dark sides of Portland's story. He supplied munitions for the wars against Native Americans and the Yakima Wars, displacing people, harming people. Much of the construction of the city was done with near-slave labor from immigrants from all over the world. And if it wasn't for some of his investments going south, the descendants of Stephen Coffin should be living off of his immense wealth that he made, attending galas and hobnobbing with all of the Portland elite. But instead, none of his descendants today share a penny of his wealth or benefit in any way from his name. They are all pretty much unknown. On the other hand, another family, the Wisenhouses, lived in rural Minnesota about 100 years after Coffin moved to the Northwest. This family was different. They were a poor immigrant family with nine kids sharing a small home, eking out a living. In fact, the story goes that they were so poor that when their middle daughter, Ida, was born, they could only pay the doctor with a sack of Timothy seed. Ida Wisenhouse grew up and married like the most handsome guy around. 
And they started a life together, rising into the middle class, loving Jesus and caring for their family. And throughout her years, Ida would quote one of her favorite passages from the book of Proverbs. She would regularly say this, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. What do these families have to do with each other? Well, both of these people are part of my story. My mom's maiden name is Coffin. And she's the great, great, great whatever of Stephen Coffin. I grew up with his, with the big family Bible in our entryway. We had his sword Literally like the only thing that we have of his. Um, and you could probably see the family resemblance from that photo, right? <laughs> and on the other hand, my dad's mom is Ida. One of these trusted in their wealth, the other trusted in her God. One's wealth rotted and disappeared, and the other has seen the provision and care of God in times of abundance and scarcity. For the last couple of months, we've been walking through the book of James, uh, which was a letter written by Jesus' brother to uh, the early Christian churches that were scattered all over the ancient world. And, we're, and, and as you've noticed, as we've gone through this letter, James is one of the most hard-hitting, like, like punch-packing uh, books of the Bible. And we are letting the very hard words of James bear their weight on us to bring us into a deeper obedience, what we are calling a robust discipleship. And today's text is probably the hardest words in a very hard book. It's a scathing condemnation toward those who live in abundance at the expense of others. And this passage forces the question, what does God think about wealth? What does the Bible have to say about money and riches? Now, if we try to interpret this, pa this passage on its own terms, devoid of any other context from the rest of the Bible, we will almost certainly arrive at wrong ends. And at the same time, if we dismiss this passage because uh, it doesn't quite harmonize with our favorite Proverbs about what God thinks about the wealthy, then we will actually miss out we can't wriggle our way out of the challenging words that James has for people who live their lives in luxury. Frankly, people like you and me. So then how can we avoid the judgment that James is announcing for the wealthy? That's what we're here for today. The Bible doesn't universally uh, condemn all rich people, nor does it celebrate wealth. Similarly, the Bible doesn't universe, can we get the next slide up? Sorry, doesn't universally extol the poor, nor does it condemn them. Throughout the Bible, there are four basic categories. I put up a nice two by two for you so that you can have a, a good reference point. The first category is the unrighteous poor. In the Bible, you have warnings about this person. Next slide, please. You have warnings about this person. This is the lazy sluggard or thief. This is the prostitute or sinner. Though God regards the circumstances of the poor with compassion and mercy, when the poor resort to sin and unjust means for survival, the Bible teaches that God resists them and judges them for it. This is the prodigal son. This is the thief on the cross. In today's language, the unrighteous poor is the person who's caught in the trap of addiction. It's the dealer or the thief or someone who commits welfare fraud. It's the liar or the grifter. 
And it's not their poverty that makes them unrighteous, but rather unrighteousness in their situation leads to God's resistance. And then on the other hand, the next category is you have the righteous poor. This person is who the Bible was primarily written to and written for. This is the God-fearing person who suffers often unjustly in poverty. This is Israel caught in slavery in Egypt. It's the immigrant or the widow or the orphan. It's the people of Israel under the oppressive rule of foreign nations like the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans. It's all of the apostles. It's Mary and Joseph. It is Jesus himself. That would be considered the righteous poor. And contrary to popular teaching in much of church world today, God doesn't automatically materially bless his people for their faithfulness. Righteous living doesn't merit financial or physical blessing. In fact, it is entirely possible, maybe even likely, to live a life totally devoted to God and still have nothing, just like Jesus. Up next, the third category is the unrighteous rich. And again, this type of person is everywhere in the Bible. It's Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar. It's the tax collectors, the Jerusalem elite. It's Herod or Pontius Pilate or Zacchaeus before he became a follower of Jesus. And the Bible is full of warnings about the unrighteous rich. And it's full of warnings to the unrighteous rich. Like in today's text, God's face is especially turned against those who oppress other people for their own gain. While Jesus was, was on the earth, during his last week before he went to the cross, he famously charged into the temple and saw the exploitation that was happening in God's house, and he was full of anger. It says that he made a whip and drove out the money changers, turning over their tables and scattering all of their goods. God resists and reserves judgment for the oppressor who lives in luxury. And then the fourth category, the category that we all deep down secretly aspire to be, is the righteous rich. Uh, and this person is the rarest one to find in the Bible. You have people like Abraham and King David and Solomon. And while these men were celebrated for their riches and their prosperity, their righteousness in it, they were also extremely compromised figures. And their compromise was directly connected to their wealth and status. They loved God, but they also objectified others, particularly women. They built the temple, but they did so with unjust labor, labor slaves from other nations. So, so those guys aren't great. So then you could look instead at guys like Joseph or Job. But both of these men were only righteous in their wealth as they learned to be righteous in their suffering. And then you can look at people like Mary of Bethany or Joseph of Arimathea or Lydia, all wealthy people that were, that were celebrated by God, but they were celebrated because they regularly poured out their wealth and kept nothing for themselves so that they could bless others and care for the poor. The righteous rich is, an exceed, is exceedingly rare. And while the Bible praises them, the Bible also warns that this kind of person is the most difficult to become. At times, the Bible would even suggest that it is nearly impossible to become. In Luke 18, there's this famous story of a seemingly righteous rich person who approaches Jesus with an honest question. He says, what is left for me to do to be able to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers him, just like everybody, man, keep the law. Don't lie, don't murder, don't commit adultery, honor your father and mother. 
And this righteous, rich young man, he breathes this sigh of relief. Oh, good. Check, 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 check. But then Jesus doubles down and says this. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will then have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the rich man heard this, it says that he became sad, even heartbroken, because he had such great wealth. In Mark's gospel, in his telling of the story, he emphasizes that Jesus said this to the young man because he loved him. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and says this. He says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples hear this, they're taken aback. It says that they're deeply troubled. Troubled. They say, who then can possibly be saved? And Jesus replies, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And while it's true that this story, if you've been in church world, no doubt you have heard this story told a hundred times, a hundred different ways, probably with some like made up archaeology about some fake needle gate that camels like could barely crawl through or something like that. It's not a real thing, guys. While it's true that this story is drawing out the idolatry of the young man's heart, Jesus is plainly warning all of us, it is nearly impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It is exceedingly rare for the wealthy to learn to live with their wealth in a way that reflects God's best for their lives. Scottish philosopher Alastair McIntyre writes that riches from a biblical point of view are an affliction. R. Kent Hughes writes that wealth is a spiritual handicap. Basically, biblically, no one is better off for having financial prosperity. It's rather a disadvantage for them, spiritually speaking. As Jesus calls this young man who is before him, this young man that the Bible explicitly says that he loves tenderly, as he calls him to sell everything that he has, He's not commanding him to do something that is basically impossibly difficult. He's not punishing him for being wealthy. Jesus is inviting him into a deeper freedom than this young man could imagine for himself. He's calling this young man to dethrone money and to enthrone Jesus in his heart. And this is the theme that is woven through James's letter. In the first chapter of James, he writes... Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. He says that our wealth or our self-sufficiency is actually a hindrance to our ability to live with humility and to be a recipient of God's grace. No one is immune from the very difficult circumstances of life that bring humiliation to each one of us. Whether you are rich or poor, we will all face these kind of situations. So the rich should therefore live in the same dependence and the same open-handedness and the same trust as the poor do. For when suffering arrives, you will be prepared to walk through it with grace, hand in hand with your father. But now, that was chapter one. Now in chapter five, James t- James's tone switches even harder. It, it becomes very harsh. 
He has someone particular in mind, and he is not mincing words. So let's read this passage one more time with that in mind. James writes, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ear of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Those brutal words, right? So the question is, who is James writing these scathing words about? Who is this kind of judgment reserved for? Is this about those in the church, or is this about those who are outside of the church? James 5 is speaking to a particular audience, which is that, that um, I don't remember what number category, but the unrighteous wealthy who exploit the poor for their own gain. And scholars debate sort of who the specific guilty party is that James is writing about. Some say that it's the crooked farmers who hire these poor workers to come and, and bring in their harvest and then refuse to pay their wages. Other scholars say that he's rather talking about the Jerusalem elite, the Sadducees and the chief priests who live in their fine homes and they grow fat on the proceeds of the pilgrimages and sacrifices that are brought by faithful Jews. I actually think that it could be all of the above. But James is not here speaking about those who are faithful to God within the community of faith. He's not talking about Christians. He's not condemning the wealthier members of the church. James is declaring that judgment awaits those who are using and abusing these humble Christians who are suffering in the midst of persecution and famine. It's Christmas, so I can get away with this. James is essentially Jacob Marley, visiting Scrooge to warn that what awaits him is nothing but chains. Doomed, Scrooge! You're doomed for all time! That's what James is saying here. And so this morning's text is, is literally the Christmas carol. Like, we could just watch my favorite version, the, the best version, right? I save it for Christmas Eve. James brings four indictments in this passage against the unrighteous rich, against the Ebenezer Scrooges. First, he condemns the hoarder of wealth. He says that as you hold fast to your money and your possession and your clothes, they begin to rot and they're moth-eaten, they, they corrode. Hoarding is a mental illness if you hoard anything except for money. But if you give yourself to building up a bank account without actually using your money to benefit other people, to supply for the needs of others in your community, James would say, what good is it? It's just sitting there. It's just, it's just going to end up being rotting and, and corroding at the end. Our wealth hoarding actually works against our souls, he says, and the end is a pile of rotting wealth. Secondly, he brings an indictment against fraud. He said, see, these fraudsters, they've withheld wages they were owed to the poor who worked for them. And in the context that James was writing in, this kind of fraud was actually a matter of life and death. You see, these, these workers were suffering in, in a time of, of incredible scarcity and even famine. 
And he uses language that points us back to the fourth chapter of Genesis when God said that the blood of innocent Abel, that the, the, the voice of the blood was calling out to him from the ground. And instead, it's the cries of the harvesters have reached God's ear and he will not sit back and let it happen. He is against the fraudster. The third indictment is self, unrighteous self-indulgence. On the backs of the poor, these rich people have lived in luxury. They buy cheap goods that are, pro- that are produced by unpaid workers. They live lavishly for their own comfort while others are going without. They fatten themselves while others are starving. James warns them that their self-indulgence is like fattening them up for the day of slaughter. They are like a cow who is being fed only to later be eaten. And then the fourth indictment, finally he confronts them for murder. It says they've condemned and murdered the righteous person. And this may simply be an indictment against those who, um, who indifferently use and toss aside innocent laborers. Uh, right now there is a great controversy that is happening around the World Cup in Qatar because Qatar was unjustly given, uh, given the right to be able to host this World Cup through acts of bribery and everything else. And over the last 10 years, more than 6,500 migrant workers have died building the infrastructure for Qatar to be able to host this. Maybe that's what he's talking about. And James says that their blood is crying out from the ground and that they will be avenged. Another reading of this, though, the murder part, is, uh, is that this is an indictment against the elite in Jerusalem, those who murdered Jesus just days after he confronted them for their exploitive system in the temple. Now, before we pat ourselves on the back for not being like those rich people, I mean, like, you probably haven't murdered anybody with your riches, right? Your, your money isn't literally rotting somewhere in a hole somewhere. I hope. It's a bad idea. We need to rather invite the Spirit of God to talk to us, to talk to us about our participation with a world system that commits the same kind of injustices that James is talking about. We are all implicated on some level as we give ourselves over to systems that oppress others, often in other parts of the world. This isn't meant to be like a heavy-handed condemnation. It's just something to let the words of James rest on us a little bit while we are here. Because a fixation on material wealth, it gradually spawns the same four indictments in our own lives. And Jesus warns us that the end of our hoarding wealth or committing fraud or living in luxury through the oppression of other people or participating in that which harms or kills others, the end of that life is destruction. But Jesus leads his followers in a different way. So before we wrap up today's sermon, we should ask, okay, how should we live? If we know that James isn't talking about those who are Christians in the church, he's talking about people who are being extremely exploitive outside the church, how do we live our lives here in 21st century America in such a way where we are not guilty of the same condemnation? How does Jesus call us to live with our wealth? One of my favorite quotes from R. Kent Hughes is this. He says, every time I give, I declare that money has no, has, does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. Hey, sweetheart. <laughs> Altar call is coming. Don't worry. We'll get there. What 
what James is saying here is that we resist temptation of riches through practicing generosity and contentment. This is how we live free from the pull of riches in our lives. In giving, we don't reflect the way of the world systems that seek to hoard or commit fraud or kill. We rather reflect our generous God. We become more and more like Jesus as we practice generosity. The more generous we become, the more that we reflect Jesus. Following Jesus will never lead you to become more stingy. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in, the, in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. He says, God is generous. God richly provides for everything that we need. God richly provides for everything that we need for our enjoyment, it says. God delights in lavishing his people with his goodness. So why put your hope in wealth or stuff? You have everything you need in God. Why give yourself to accumulating more and more things that we know will just break and fall apart and disappear? Why be arrogant or self-important? God is the source of all good. Instead, Paul says that we are called, I mean, literally commanded to be generous with our wealth. We are commanded to give our money and to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to share with others who are in need. And when we do that, he says that we are laying up for ourselves a greater treasure, treasure in the age to come, true riches. He's talking about true riches. And all of this is a, a reflection of, of our generous father that we read in earlier in James, in chapter one. James writes this, he says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Or 1 Peter 1 says it like this, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Our hope doesn't come from our silver or our gold. It doesn't come from security that we have in a bank account. Our hope is, it's a gift of God's son. The gift that our father has given us in Jesus is immeasurable. That though we were distant from God and living in sin, our father sent his only son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for our sin by dying on a cross. He took upon himself the debt that our sin owed so that we could be reconciled to the father. And he says that he lavishes this on us. He lavishes this, this grace and this mercy on us. It is an incalculable gift. Or again, Paul writes this in Romans 8. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The logic is that if God didn't spare Jesus, what makes you think that he is going to be withholding towards you? And so when we are practicing generosity, when we are giving freely and deeply of ourselves, we are practicing the gospel. We are practicing the kingdom of God. We are reflecting our generous God who will never be outdone in generosity because he has given what is most precious in, to him to win you, 
the desire of his heart. And when you experience the grace of God being poured out in your life, it frees you from a love or a fear of money and calls you, rather, to reflect the generosity of God. I want us to get a hold of this vision, uh, of a vision for the beauty of a church that reflects the generosity of what God is like. Think of a church who grabs hold of the truth in 1 Timothy 6. He says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. The church is called to model an alternative vision of contentment in the world. The godliness with contentment, this kind of godliness with contentment, it's great gain. It recognizes that our culture's vision of happiness is nothing but an illusion. It's like cotton candy. It's sweet in your mouth for a moment, but then it disappears and dissolves. Imagine the church who waged war on, the, on this illusion by living free of the love of money. We read of such a church in Acts chapter 4. It says, all, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, uh, in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Uh, pastor and theologian Tim Keller, speaking about the early church as this alternative in the pagan world, he says this, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. I love that quote. I love that vision of the church. This is a church that is shining in the midst of a fallen world which worships at the altar of status and wealth. Uh, in one of my favorite books that I read uh, each year, it's called A Creative Minority, uh, Pastor John Tyson, he calls the church to be financially promiscuous. <laughs> I love that language. What, what could it be like if the church lived like that before the world? Imagine someone cashing out retirement savings to pay off the student loan debt of a young church planter. Imagine a life group who challenged themselves to sell off 50% of their possessions so that they could care for the needy among them. Imagine funding young missionaries to take the gospel to unreached people groups in other parts of the world. And God says that that kind of living is not a waste. It's actually making room in your heart to store up even more true riches. Now, how are we doing? You guys still with me? Nobody's left yet, so that's a good sign. All right, excellent. I'm aware of the fact that in this room, there are people who uh, are not Christians and who are maybe just checking this whole church thing out. And if this is your first week at church, I'm probably confirming everything that you assumed about us from the beginning, that we're just after your money. And it breaks my heart that there is a reputation out there that, I mean, that the church has earned this reputation in certain, certain corners of Christianity. But my experience of the family of God is that that just isn't true. 
the desire for us is not to be able to get your money. It's that you would experience the true riches of knowing God, of having God's spirit take up residence in your heart. Way before he calls any of us to give anything to him, Jesus already gave everything for us. And so today, our main goal is that each one would be able to experience, joy, uh, to experience the joy of a life in relationship with God. But if you have experienced joy in the relationship with God, here are a few steps for how to become more generous. These are just four principles that I think God teaches us in the Bible. The first is to give first. The Bible over, over and over again calls us to give him the first fruits. It's about making your giving a priority. Have you ever noticed that if you hope to give, you know, to be generous with whatever's left over at the end of the month, there's really like nothing left over at the end of the month? Or is that just me? Anybody? Okay, we all need a budget. I found that, that if, if instead as we set our hearts to not give what's left over, but to give from the first fruits, God has always taken care of our needs. And sometimes it's scary and tight and we have to cut other things out of the budget, but God has always taken care of my family. Back in 2018, um, we had a very difficult year financially, Carly and I. Um, this was a time where Carly had uh, two surgeries uh, and also Soren was born. So she was out of work for more than six months. And that was a huge hit to us financially. Um, but as we were praying at the beginning of the year, sort of anticipating that, you know, maternity leave was coming and stuff, we asked God, okay, how should we adjust our giving? And we felt like God said to just keep our tithe the same. Just keep, keep giving as if we were making that full amount. And it was hard. And there were a lot of months when we were doing the bills where we thought about how much easier it would be if we just stopped giving. And then at the end of the year, Right before Carly was about to have another surgery, someone anonymously slipped a check under the office door made out to us, made out for the same amount of money that we had tithed that year. And it kept us above water through Carly's surgery. And I still have no idea who gave that money to us. It may have been an angel of the Lord. I don't know. But I, I tell the story to show that God is rich towards those towards us, especially as we trust him with our money. It doesn't guarantee that we will never experience hardships, but he loves when we take risks to be generous towards him. And I don't believe that if, he, if you give, it'll just be automatically returned to you as being, becoming super rich. It's just meant to say that God cares for his people. So we give from our first fruits. We give him the first portion. His is the first check that we write. Secondly, we give proportionally. All of us have been given the ability to give at different levels according to our means. The Bible generally teaches uh, the principle of a tithe, which means 10%. Um, and there's a long conversation that we can have about whether or not that's meant to be a New Testament principle or if it's an Old Testament principle. And none of that really matters to me because what's, what is clear from the Bible is that we're just called to be generous, to be rich toward God. And so I believe that the tithe is a really great place to start, 10% but it's up to each one of us to prayerfully consider what God would invite us to give. And God is so kind. He's so gentle with us. He invites us to even start with just small baby steps. The third principle is to give regularly. Make a plan for your giving. Put it in the budget. Decide how frequently you're going to give, whether it's every week or if it's every paycheck or it's monthly, and then make a plan for how you will make sure that it happens. 
Um, what we've done is we've set up a monthly gift on the website. And we do this, uh, uh, we do this for every uh, organization group that we give to. We just set up an automatic gift because if, if you're like me, I, I just forget all the time if it's not automatically withdrawn. And, and uh, we used to do that all the time. We would show up to church, the offering would come, and I'd be like, dang it, I forgot my, my checkbook again. I mean, it was probably more like, oh, dang, sorry, everybody, I forgot my checkbook again. Um, and I, I really did hate it. I'd feel guilty and disappointed that I had forgotten. And so now, each week, whenever we talk about opportunities to be generous, I just feel this little, um, this little grace in my heart that, oh, God, thank you. I was able to give this month. That's so great. And so if you value something, make sure that it happens. Automate the things that you care about. And then the fourth principle, most important principle, I think, is to give cheerfully. God is not glorified in our reluctance or being compelled to give by a heavy-handed, slimy preacher up front. <laughs> God delights in us giving from the heart. He delights in us finding delight in generosity. And that said, giving is not easy for a lot of us. It often feels risky. Maybe for you, it goes back to your family of origin, just always feeling the sense of like fear and scarcity, like we'll never have enough, just feeling so scared to give. But it's taking a step of faith to see God make up the difference in our lack. It may not feel cheerful at the beginning, but the Holy Spirit, he actually teaches us to feel this joy and excitement as we practice the discipline of generosity. So give in whatever way makes you cheerful. For some, that's automating your gift online. For others, it's to do it secretly with cash. Maybe for you, it's to dance down the aisle during worship and to put your money in the black box. And you know what? Whatever floats your boat. Like, we're all for all of that. Whatever fills your heart with joy as you give is something that we will celebrate together. So, give first, give proportionally, give regularly, give cheerfully. And then we will experience the true riches that God has offered to his followers. Amen? Amen. Okay.